This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. In our world today, machines are an indelible part of our everyday lives. We rely on powerful devices to help us find information, organize ourselves, and make decisions. But what if all these machines that help us in our everyday lives could actually listen to our actions? In this talk, Richard Zayed and Timothy Meany from ARC90 contrast the way we make discoveries today by testing theories within controlled environments to a world where correlations can be discovered by simply peering into and querying data gathered out of our everyday actions. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So we're going to talk about uh, something that's kind of out there today. Uh, that we were kind of worried about the title of this presentation. Um, and uh, we're going to touch on a lot of different topics. It's kind of a big picture, forward-looking type of to uh, conversation. So we're ARC90. We're from New York City. Uh, you guys may have heard of us from a little bookmark that we put out a couple weeks ago called Readability. And I'm mentioning this here uh, because there's a lot of designers and IA people here, and Readability uh, tries to clean up the web in sort of a guerrilla brute force manner. Uh, so you can check it out at our lab at lab.arc90.com. Uh, we last, uh, I was last here three years ago at, it was Montreal and it was two degrees, and I gave a talk on uh, information objects, and we haven't been back since, so it's good to be back at the IA Summit. So before we get started, I want to throw out sort of a, a backstory or sort of a, a backdrop to what we're going to talk about. And I want everyone to sort of imagine a world uh, that has no fossil records, that, you know, human beings dig around all the time and build stuff and set foundations, and they never stumbled on any, any fossils. So kind of put that in the back of your minds, and uh, we'll come back to it later. So the first thing we want to cover is, you know, how are sci scientific discoveries made today? Um, and sort of the process of discovering things in science is really primarily driven by the scientific method, right? And the scientific method, uh, and this is the definition from Merriam-Webster, um, and I'm going to read the second paragraph. Uh, to be termed scientific, a method of inquiry must be based on gathering observable, empirical, and measurable evidence subject to specific principles of reasoning. And, you know, observable, empirical, and measurable is really what it's all about, right? And, you know, as we look at the world today, there are an endless number of data points in the world, right? Uh, information about things is everywhere. And between those data points, there's causation, and things cause other things to happen. And, you know, just as there's an endless number of data points, there's, there's an endless sort of array of of cause, causational links between those data points. So, you know, how does science kind of grapple with that and make discoveries? Well, what typically happens is we sort of, the scientists or someone that, you know, wants to research a particular theory or hypothesis zooms in, right? And they sort of throw up a fence. And they throw up that fence because they want to have some purity in what they're researching. They want to sort of keep out the bad links, right, and find real causation in what they're trying to prove out. And that's really key. Um, and the holy grail, obviously, is 
validating that hypothesis, right? Uh, proving out that a particular cause results in an effect. Historically, re research isn't the only way that discoveries are made, right? Sometimes we get suspicious. You know, for the longest time, uh, it was understood that eating a, a high-fat diet uh, caused uh, heart disease and other conditions. Um, and then what we found was that the population along the northern Mediterranean coast ate a high-fat diet, but uh, didn't have the high incidence of heart disease that we, we see in the West. And after probing further, they found that there are distinctions to be made uh, within fat, right? There's good fat. Uh, olive oil and fish oils actually are good for us. And that led to other discoveries. So sometimes it's a hunch that we work off of, which leads to further study. Sometimes we get lucky. You know, if, uh, if no fossils had ever been found and a scientist showed up and said, you know, I've got this sneaking suspicion that a couple million years ago there were these large lizards running around. <clears throat> I think anybody, everyone would have sort of laughed them out of the place. Um, the truth is the, the Earth kept a record, right? They, it did us a big favor by sort of leaving artifacts behind that sort of document the past. Speaking of luck, uh, Fleming uh, was a scientist, uh, a, I guess a, a pretty sloppy scientist, uh, left some stuff out in his lab and uh, the next morning uh, had discovered the first antibiotic. And I, I, you could kind of tell from this picture that he's not really comfortable with the discovery. He sort of stumbled on it and, you know, he's accepting the fame. But, uh, so sometimes luck plays a, plays a part. And sometimes we're not that lucky. Um, you know, the vitamin industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and it's, it's sort of built upon uh, the fact that it's relatively unregulated. Um, uh, vitamins are touted for all sorts of health benefits. Uh, for people, and uh, there's not a lot of check and balance there to see if that's true. And one of the, the front runners is vitamin E. Vitamin E has been touted to help prevent heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, you know the, there's billions of dollars uh, of sales around vitamin E today. So the National Cancer Institute decided to do a study, and this wasn't a, a small study. This was a massive study of 35,000. Uh, subjects and what they actually honed in on was uh, vitamin E's. Uh, it, was, it was suggested that it helped prevent prostate cancer. And as the study was happening, this was a multi-year study. Um, they stopped it, and they stopped it because they found more people were getting cancer uh, when they were taking vitamin E. So that's it's kind of a bad path to go down, right? Johns Hopkins uh, did their own study, and they found that uh, there was a higher risk of death associated with vitamin E. Uh, and again, uh, not exactly a ringing endorsement uh, for taking vitamin E. And that's tough, right? It's tough to sort of work on those assumptions. And it's tough to find out that you're going down a wrong path, that you spent a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of money. So, you know, is there a better way? Is there a better way to sort of stumble on and find these discoveries? So I want to reset things a little bit and talk about the world today. Uh, and when I say the world today, you could distinguish this from not the world 50 years ago, but just the world 10 years ago, right? In the world today, machines are everywhere, right? Uh, and when I say machines, I don't mean little robots running around, but they're in our pockets, they're in our cars, they're, they're RFIDs, 
you know, stuck on little packages and boxes and sh shipments everywhere. Machines are getting smaller. Uh, not only are they getting smaller, uh, they're getting smarter as they get smaller. So uh, they're pervasive and they're tiny. So they're the, the amount of power they require uh, is, is, is a lot less than it used to be, and, and they're more portable than they used to be. And machines aren't just for the purview of the wealthy and the privileged. This is Gordon Gecko making a deal on his brick phone in 1980-something. Um, so machines are ac accessible and available to just about everyone today. Uh, they've become commoditized. So we've got machines everywhere. And these are the ingredients, right? They're smaller, they're cheaper, they're smarter, and one thing I didn't mention is they're connected, right? Machines aren't living and thinking in isolation anymore. They're between Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and, and the cellular networks and 3G. They're all connected to one another. So as we look at that world of data points and connections and causation between data points, uh, it's not unnoticed anymore. We've sort of blanketed it to a, to a certain extent with all the machines that exist out there today. Now I'm going to turn it over to Tim Meany, who's going to talk a little bit about Sharing. Oh. Morning. So Rich presented a question. Is there a better way? Right? And then sort of formulated that along the path of an ever-increasing amount of machines uh, capturing data about our everyday lives. Uh, and that's important and valuable. But where you start to really see the possibilities emerge for uh, value and, and specifically for discovery is the sharing of data. But that presents us sort of with a uh, chicken and egg problem. Why would anyone share data? Historically, in fact, there's been a lot of incentive to not share data, right? Individuals, companies, entities, or uh, countries uh, have had direct incentive to not share. Security reasons, competitive reasons, privacy reasons. So we need some big trends uh, to counteract that sort of stasis, right? Reason number one, we may have to. If you go back to the Great Depression, uh, FDR was speaking with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and the Chief Justice said, uh, sunshine is the best, uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant, I'm sorry. Uh, that sort of stuck with FDR and sort of brewed in his thoughts for a while, and, and he credits that quote as uh, inspiring the SEC. The theory being, uh, the sharing of information, the making available of data, particularly for public companies, uh, could perhaps uh, stay off the next uh, economic calamity. Uh, if you go forward to the present, it, of course, hasn't turned out so, so great. Uh, but the SEC is back. So SEC 2.0 uh, is sort of centering around this uh, XBRL, which you may have heard of. It's an XML markup language for financial transactions. Uh, it's been around for about 12 years. It has some uh, momentum in other countries. And as of last year, the SEC in fact, mandated that the 50 largest uh, companies in the country had to report all of their financial data in this uh, markup language. And then I think as of this year, they've extended that to the 250 largest companies and so on. So that trend is clear. Uh, companies are going to have to be more transparent. If you look at what just happened over the last six months, uh, even though there was the SEC and even though there was quarterly filing of, of uh, financial information, companies were hiding in plain sight. So the theory being XBRL and a standard open format could, could address that. Uh, other trends at the federal level. The Obama administration, of course, ran on the notion largely of transparency, right? Bring, ushering in a new wave of transparency to government. Uh, Obama hired an SEC, I believe, in his first week in office, and I read a quote where uh, the, uh, he hired, excuse me, a CIO, uh, and the CIO said, 
he wants to usher in a wave of the democratization of data and then announced that he'd be launching a uh, website called data.gov where he would make uh, government data available in raw form. I've checked. I checked yesterday. It's still 404, but they're busy guys, and I'm sure data.gov will be up any moment. Also, uh, a congressman from Silicon Valley, California, perhaps not surprisingly, named Mike Honda is sort of, uh, in, the, in the congressional side of things, is sort of ushering in the same trend. He slipped in three sentences to one of these uh, spending bills that have gone through of late, and which would require the government to openly account for uh, much of their data in a, in a uh, more raw form way than they have been today. Today, they have the government printing office where they you know, are glad to send you PDFs and, and you can read all about what the government is up to, uh, but he says that's not good enough. So we'll see how that moves. So I may have to, right? But that's not enough. I also may want to. It may be good business for me to share data. You see a lot of trends moving in this direction. This is a big trend. You're all familiar with the Netflix surprise, I'm sure, which is the fact that Netflix made available their, a full accounting of all their historical recommendation data. And they challenged basically anyone who's interested uh, to optimize their, basically their algorithm and improve it by 10%. The first team to improve it by 10% wins a million dollars. So what's in it for Netflix? You know, they gave up a lot of data. This is a, a boon to researchers, uh, all of this historical recommendation data. They've effectively turned any, you know, people who are not working for Netflix into sort of surrogate employees. People are working on Netflix's problems, who otherwise would not be, right? That's a pretty powerful trend. You have people all over the world who could care less about Netflix and, how, and their success uh, incented to then worry about Netflix and improve their service. So very similar to that is a, is a website called Lending Club. Uh, this is a map of Lending Club's borrowers that somebody put together. And the, the reason this map was, was possible is that Lending Club runs a website called LendingClubStats.com where they make all of their uh, data available. They anonymize it, of course, but uh, everything from where their borrowers are to their applications to uh, their default rates, you know, really significant data they've put out there. Similar uh, motivation as Netflix, which is they've also, quote unquote, open source their uh, interest rate algorithm and hope that people would help them improve that. So I may want to, reason two. Big trend, big reason number three, uh, Tim Berners-Lee said so. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee, of course, created the World Wide Web 20 years ago out of a frustration with how difficult it was to share information. And he's once again frustrated. This slide, I love this slide, uh, this is from his TED talk a few weeks ago, uh, where he, he somewhat backed off the semantic web, maybe a little bit, uh, and is now furthering this notion of raw data now. Uh, what he says to stop hugging your data. Stop uh, keeping it in-house and beautifying it and holding it until it's perfect and then allowing it to go out. And his other quote from, uh, from this presentation was, you don't know what's useful. So let your data be free. Uh, so if Tim Berners-Lee is getting behind a big trend, we sh I think we should pay attention. Uh, so back to Rich's sort of uh, problem scope that he presented, which was this world of, of data. You know, data is being collected everywhere, lots of value being created, and now there's uh, perhaps big incentives to share that data. So now we're presented with a, a big opportunity, right? So how do we capitalize on that? This is a quote I came across yesterday. Uh, data is cheap, insight is expensive. I, I was really taken aback by that. I think that's an excellent quote. Uh, if you were here at the IA Summit yesterday, which I was not, you might have heard that quote live because this is where I heard it. Anyone? Is uh, Livia here? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Karen's here. Data is cheap, insight is expensive. 
So in a world where uh, data is everywhere, right, how are we going to tease out causation and correlation and, and uh, find value? Humans have been presented with really difficult challenges before. And this is another one. This is a different, uh, different sort of challenge, but look at how we rise to the challenge all the time. I mean, that's awesome. We fly, for goodness sakes. Uh, <laughs> recently, I was reading Stephen Baker's Numerati, somewhat interesting book, uh, and one quote really stood out. Um, it was by Jack Einhorn. He's a chief scientist at a New York media startup called Inform Technologies. He, quote unquote, predicts that the great discoveries of the 21st century will come from finding uh, patterns in vast archives of data. He says the next Jonas Salk will be a mathematician, not a doctor. So I wasn't terribly surprised by that because, in fact, Rich and I have been talking about this for years, which led to this talk. Uh, but to see it said so succinctly, uh, it's a very powerful statement, right? Go back to Fleming working in the lab. You know, he's a scientist. He's doing something, and he finds a great discovery. Or, uh, or Jonas Salk, for instance. Could really a mathematician, somebody sitting home, pouring over archives of data, working on an algorithm, could that really lead to the next great scientific discovery? So if that's true, who should we consider uh, to help us along this path? I think it, throughout human history, you could look to the right people being incented to work on the problem, so the, the right minds, or, or good tools. So let's start with uh, the right minds. So certainly when considering this opportunity or this challenge, you'd have to consider uh, professionals and academics and researchers, right? That's the obvious first place to start. Uh, but sort of hearkening back to the Netflix example, I think there's another trend to keep an eye on. And if the trend I'm going to describe to you uh, does become true, you could trace that back to a Van Camp's pork and beans factory in Lawrence, Kansas in 1977. That's where Bill James worked. Does anyone know Bill James, the story of Bill James? Uh, Bill James was a night watchman at uh, this pork and beans factory, and he's an amateur mathematician. Uh, and he was uh, very interested in baseball. And baseball had, is a great example because it had a 130-year archive of historical data available. Uh, but before Bill James, people were largely judged in baseball like on an emotional level almost. Like, uh, that guy's going to be great someday. Look at him run. He looks like the Mick. You know, he's going to be great. Bill James said, no, forget that. Let's use reason. Let's use data. And let's answer some important questions about baseball. Things like, is fielding more important uh, to your win percentage than having really good pitching? Uh, is it better to have a pitcher who strikes out people more, even though he gives up walks? So answered those questions with data. Uh, that trend sort of emerges out of Bill James. Bill James, it, you know, it's sort of a romantic American thing, the outsider who's going to you know, peer into an industry and, and solve it uh, using data. He's no longer the amateur. He's, in fact, the ultimate professional. He's hired by the Boston Red Sox. So uh, you're probably familiar with Nate Silver. He just gave the... Uh, Keynote at South by Southwest last week. I'm sure some of you were there. Uh, Nate Silver's an inter interesting guy. He ran a website, 538.com, during this last election cycle where he used everyday data. He used polling data. He used a lot of information, anything he could get his hands on, and uh, used that and called 50 of 51 presidential contests. Uh, he got one wrong, which I believe was Indiana, and all of the called Senate races. What you might not know about Nate Silver is he's a Bill James guy. He's a baseball guy worked 15 years on baseball and sabermetrics and that whole world, and then sort of moved over to politics. Uh, so that's the right brains. So let's move on to tools. I've, I've studied this picture for many hours, and I think I figured out what's going on. Uh, she wants to nap on the train without uh, waking up with a neck ache. So the plunger, I guess, keeps her head up. And I think that yellow 
sign is the stop she needs to get off at, so someone should wake her up when she gets to that stop. Tools. Uh, tools are important because tools uh, enable uh, the less than expert among us to tap into that world uh, of data, right? Uh, Tim talked about the brains and the expertise and the mathematicians and statisticians that can find discoveries, but if the tools are powerful enough, others can as well. So I think the semantic web was introduced before 2002, but for me, that's really when I discovered it, and I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, you know, I thought it was going to change the way we dealt with information. I thought it was going to change. I thought the web was temporary. Uh, this this web with pictures and 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 documents would be replaced by real connections, uh, real semantic connections with information. And uh, you know, 2002 was going to usher in a new dawn. And then 2003 came along, and and uh, I was still pretty excited about the semantic web. And then in 2005, I think The Economist came out and said that this was the year of the semantic web. And 06 came around and the dawn uh, wasn't really moving very much and, and I'm starting to get nervous and, and it's 2008 and we still haven't seen the semantic web take over the world. Um, so what's happening? I mean, even Tim Berners-Lee, who is, you know, is the advocate of, and, uh, of the semantic web, uh, sort of is resetting his pitch and just... Uh, saying, okay, look, you know what, just share your data out and we'll figure out how, what to do with it later. And the semantic web is important because it's built a lot of the tools that can help us uh, sift through, visualize, and analyze that data. Uh, so, I mean, this, the semantic web is going to change everyone's lives, so what's everyone waiting for? Um, and, you know, to sort of try to find an explanation, I, I want to uh, try to sort of pro provide an illustration from Delicious. And, if, for those sitting in the back, these are banana-flavored Twinkies, not just regular Twinkies. I don't think they're, they're made anymore. So Delicious is the popular uh, social bookmarking site. Everyone, uh, I'm sure, knows about Delicious. Uh, it's great. I, I have probably north of 1,500 links that I've stored in Delicious. And Delicious is great for me because I can literally throw something in Delicious and find it four months later in a couple of seconds. Uh, it's pretty easy to retrieve my stuff, and, it, and I love it. Um, and you know, what's interesting about Delicious is it, it's, uh, it's an excellent example of, of selfish behavior on my part. Um, it serves a purpose for me, um, and it, it organizes my stuff, it keeps it in a central place, and, and it's great, and I can search and, and, and such. But what's interesting about Delicious is there's, even though it's pivots on self-interest, its data world grows on, based on self-interest, uh, there's, a, there's an, an incredible byproduct that comes of that that's, that provides a benefit to the community. And the byproduct in the case of Delicious is that uh, you can find patterns along the tags that people have stored stuff in. So if I hit Delicious Popular or if I search for a particular tag, there's a great chance I'm going to find good content on Delicious. And there are other examples of pivoting on self-interest for a greater uh, benefit. Flickr. Flickr's interestingness uh, is really based on, uh, first off, Flickr's interestingness is, is a, a cool uh, feature of Flickr where you can see cool stuff uh, that's out there. And they're not, they don't have a, a team of editors looking for cool pictures. They essentially are uh, monitoring and tracking what people are commenting on, saving, sharing, and such, and treating them sort of like votes. Last FM, uh, you know, Nielsen and Arbitron uh, 
spend an enormous amount of energy trying to uh, glean uh, TV and radio ratings, right? And Last.fm, uh, it's, it's built in, right? Uh, they could tell you down to the last listen which songs and which bands are trending up and, or down. Probably the most dramatic example uh, is Google. Uh, Google uh, isn't the first engine that, to come around. Uh, you know, AltaVista and Hotbot and, uh, and others were around then, and they were going to take over the world uh, with their search engines. And then Google did something different. They essentially paid attention to what people were doing individually, right? And in aggregate, came up with today the smartest way to find out uh, where stuff is on the web. And here again, uh, Google is uh, pivoting on individual actions, driven by motives, motivation that's uh, isolated rather than in aggregate. And you know, you look back at the semantic web. The semantic web. Uh, never really reached that individual level. So, what we'd argue also is that you know mining actions driven by self-interest is not only good; it's better. Uh, I don't think they make these anymore. I used to love chocodiles. It's it's a Twinkie with chocolate all over it. So here's our here's a little chart, and what you have, sort of going north-south, is actions driven by self-interest, and. East-West is reliability of data, meaning that the more an action is driven by self-interest, the more reliable the data. And you can, you know, Google will be the first to tell you that. They have teams of people who effectively make sure that the links that are on pages are legit, that there is no hidden agenda behind them. Because once the, in, the hidden agenda seeps in, uh, the integrity and the quality of Google search results will go down. So, so far in this talk, we're, we're sort of working towards a thesis based on a question that Rich asked, uh, is there a better way, right? So let's first look at some things that are happening today, some examples, uh, and then try to look forward. Really interesting example, you might have come across this. This is 37signals blog. Uh, what this exemplifies is a fossil record, right? So they were looking to improve their conversion rate from their high-rise sign-in page. So they changed some images around and they changed some wording. And uh, they got a 30% 30, 30 better result with the second image uh, rather than the original, which was on top. Uh, you know, somewhat interesting there. But what I think is powerful about that is the fossil record, right? If they weren't tracking this information, which this is an obvious one, which of course you would be tracking, right? You'd put analytics on this page to see the, the click-through. Uh, but it exemplifies the point. Uh, create a fossil record. Create a fossil record for everything. Be an archivist. You don't know what's going to be valuable later. Forget the societal good. Forget scientific research. For your own, you know, you're creating an application, archive everything. Point number two, sharing data. Uh, Landworth, Landworth is a company out of Chicago. They use everyday data to uh, estimate the price and the yield of, of crops in the Midwest. Uh, historically, this was done by the USDA, you know, walking around, interviewing people, talking to, uh, talking to people, farmers, you know, how's the season going, et cetera. Uh, Landworth sort of takes us to another level, and, and any piece of data they can get their hands on, they use, they make connections. Uh, things like rainfall in competitive markets. So if there's a, a good rainfall season in South Africa, that could affect our yield, or the price, uh, uh, satellite imagery, a lot of things like that. So Landworth is sort of uh, not sharing out data, but is on the other side of the coin. They're using any data available to them to try to, for their own benefit. Similar example to what Landworth is doing is Zillow, of course, you're probably familiar with them. They chew through terabytes of data nightly, uh, I'm guessing, uh, anything they can get their hands on, tax records, uh, 
supply and demand for labor in a given area could affect home prices. Uh, and they have an algorithm which results in his estimate, so which is their estimate of your home's value. They did something interesting a year into their existence, which was they opened up uh, their website and allowed homeowners to sign in and claim a home and improve the data. Right? So I can log in and say, no, I live there, and in fact, it's, uh, it's three bedroom. It's not four or, or vice versa. We just redid the roof or we put in a, a brand new patio. Right? So that's uh, self-interest. Right? I am motivated as the homeowner to make sure my home is correct on your site so my Zestimate will go up. That's basically what they're after there. Uh, that sort of, that has a, a more powerful effect though if that home sells. So if that home then sells for let's say $750,000, if they didn't have correct data, they would have made some bad assumptions in their algorithm, right? They would have thought that a three bedroom home in this given area sells for $750,000 when in fact it's a four bedroom. So they're, my, they're taking advantage of people's self-interest to their benefit. So examples from today, fossil record, sharing, and self-interest. So let's look forward. Of course, today, doctors and nurses gather all sorts of uh, patient information and write it on a piece of paper and hang it on the bed. Uh, and they do that because it's very useful to them. When somebody's coming on or off shift, they need to know what medications were given. They need to know the, the patient's uh, current state. Uh, but imagine a world where that same device is replaced with something digital, right? Uh, and all that data is being stored centrally. Obviously, uh, it's useful to the nurse and it's useful to that patient, but sort of a greater good could emerge out of that. You could spot epidemics much easier uh, if there was something listening to all that data and thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, there's a higher statistical uh, outbreak of something happening in one area. Uh, here, the, the nurse is still highly, there's self-interest in play here, right? She's motivated to make sure that data is correct, uh, but it, and some powerful things could come out of that. Uh, backing off that, that a little bit is sort of what Google's doing today with flu trends. Uh, they're hoping to spot the emergence of an epidemic based on search results. You've probably seen this. Uh, people searching for the flu, they would say, and if it tr proves out, indicates a higher uh, prevalence of the flu in that area. Now, this isn't as strong as the nurse whose job it is, is to make sure this data is correct. Of course, you know, they could statistically smooth some of this out, but um, I may be searching for the flu and I'm at work and it's back at home or my, I'm on the phone with my niece and I'm doing a search. So it's not as, and it's not as perfect because it's not as strong and direct. Uh, imagine a refrigerator that paid attention to our eating habits. Uh, it's a little creepy, uh, but in fact, I work with somebody who does this today. I mean, he lives in New York City and obviously doesn't want to go shopping himself. So scans in everything he eats, all the labels, and then he gets his order replenished for him. So it's happening today. Uh, but imagine the power of uh, what could come out of that data, especially coupled, you know, back to the connections, coupled with health data. You know, if your family, if something happened and you could peer back and see what you ate. Think about an outbreak example like salmonella uh, and how hard it was for us after the fact, after, you know, hundreds of people are ill across different states, to try to, you know, look back in time and see what's common amongst them. Uh, if that was digitized, that would be quite easy to, to figure out what everybody had in common or what everybody had eaten in common. Terrorism. Uh, it's increasingly difficult to discover and track terrorism threats, obviously. Uh, this is a particularly tough challenge for governments and security organizations because uh, people who wish to do harm are, uh, are living amongst us and try to look no different than anyone else until it's time to act, right? So how do we deal with this problem today? There's the, the, the populace at large. And you obviously can't monitor everyone. So maybe there's a reason to monitor some people. 
Uh, maybe there's a preponderance of the evidence or a judge's order or a search warrant. Uh, so the government is keeping a direct eye on, on a few people. But what if it wasn't those people? What if it's uh, two, three, or four, or five degrees separation from those people? What if they all had something in common with somebody else? Uh, they all visited the same place or were on the same flight or something. So it's the connections. It's not a direct link. And you could think this same example for in a lot of different cases, such as health. You know, it may not be that we, uh, we all lived in the same place. That's why we're all ill. We may have been exposed to the same environmental trigger. We may have eaten some of the similar foods. Uh, we may be from the same heritage line. So three, four, five degrees far, further away uh, could lead to value, which, of course, brings us to privacy. So your refrigerator is watching what you eat. Uh, the government's watching you talk to other people. Uh, this obviously raises the the privacy question, um, and it's it's obviously a completely valid uh, concern. Um, well, to ask that privacy question today is is probably different than asking it five years ago, ten years ago. Um, you know, our view of privacy and our view of what we're willing to trust other organizations, companies, and and uh, services with is changing, um, you know, and it, it's partly because uh, there's enormous value that's being given to us, and uh, we're not only uh, sharing more of, more of our lives with these these companies, uh, but more intimate part of parts of our lives. Uh, you know, Facebook doesn't ask you to be as intimate as you possibly can, uh, but but the trends and and the the sort of social patterns that are arising is causing people to do that. So uh, we have a sort of a different view today of of, of what we're willing to tolerate because of the value that's being introduced to us. Google was kind of uh, confronted with this uh, last year, uh, and they, they responded by agreeing to anonymize IP addresses uh, on their server logs after nine months. Uh, but you know, in the uh, announcement that they put up on their blog when they, when they agreed to do that, they, they expressed a concern, a concern uh, around the potential loss of security, quality, and innovation that may result from having less data. Uh, you know, Google is, is, is making a pretty big uh, assumption here, and, and the assumption they're making is that you trust them, right? They're saying that we want to innovate, we want to make new discoveries, uh, and, but we also are concerned about privacy, but that there are two sides to this coin, right? And which kind of can be summed up in what I call the, the reckless ambulance argument or counter argument. Uh, you know, Courts uh, to this day have held uh, pretty clearly that an ambulance driver and its employer, an ambulance service or a hospital, is actually insulated from liability uh, for accidents that they may cause. Uh, act, you know, ambulances rip through red lights and go really fast, and every so often, unfortunately, you know, people get killed. Um, and we have all collectively, as a society, made a decision, made a, done a cost-benefit and made a decision that ambulances need to go fast because we want to get the sick people picked up and to the hospital as quickly as possible. And we understand that there are risks associated with that. Uh, and that's the, the, the sort of decision and, and the balance we choose to strike. And, you know, you're looking back on the capabilities of sharing out this kind of data, and not just in terms of immediate benefit, but discoveries in medicine and in, and in other sciences, uh, the, 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 the question of what we're willing to tolerate is a lot trickier. So, looking back on research today, research today is difficult, it's ris risky, and 
it's tough, right? It's tough to do research today. I mean, it's, it's a challenge. You're taking a risk when you embark on a research study of some sort. You know, in the February issue of, of Wired Magazine, uh, it was actually titled The End of Science. Um, and Chris Anderson uh, essentially touted in sort of a, a really loud and dramatic way that this was the end of science, that science uh, would be replaced by people that can peer into all that information. Uh, who knows why people do what they do? The point is they do it, and we can track and measure it with unprecedented fidelity. With enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, that's a bold proposition, right? Uh, you know, we don't think that this is an either-or scenario. Uh, this isn't about stopping research and stopping how we make discoveries today and uh, just obs observing and analyzing information. Uh, it's not that simple. You know, and if we look back on that, that world of data points and putting up that fence, and you know, when those researchers decided to put up that fence to try to find out if vitamin, vitamin E was in fact beneficial to our health, uh, something went wrong, right? Uh, that discovery never got made, and uh, it's too bad. Uh, and what we're suggesting is that uh, there's a balance and that these things can, can coexist, meaning if data and what we peer into and find in that data can help us decide where to put up that fence uh, so that 35,000 subjects don't have to be gathered for a study, then that's what you know, could potentially be very helpful, right? So what are some takeaways from what we've presented today? Um, first off, create a fossil record. Um, and, you know, in the most simplistic form, that's logging, right? But think a little bit further about what can be done with your data later on, because you really don't know where those uses uh, can go today. And not only just for yourselves, but for others as well. If I shared this data out to the world, what can be what can we blend with it to come up with new information? Share. Share it out. Um, you know, at, at ARC, we, we, we build software, and a lot of the time uh, we think about the APIs before we think about the actual uh, software we're building. And, and we do that not really knowing what's going to be done with that API, right? Uh, that ability to sort of speak directly to the data store and the information that's stored in applications. Um, so share it out, and, and this can feel counterintuitive to businesses and to, and to, to people, uh, but it's, if, if, if you think more boldly in the possibilities of sharing out, uh, presents a lot of new opportunities. And finally, exploit self-interest. You know, I think this is partly where, you know, the semantic web uh, pitch lost its way. The semantic web never really connected with uh, what really drives behavior and usage and, and, and information on the web, which is uh, providing real value to people um, and thinking about that. Uh, you know, I don't know if anybody here remembers Google Base. Do you guys remember Google Base? I think it's still around. Google Base was really a web interface to what was supposed to be a semantic store, and it was an absolutely bizarre site. You'd hit the site and there was personals and cars for sale and recipes all in the same place. Essentially, they tried to create this world where you could throw anything in and they were going to take care of organizing that information. And I think part of the reason it never took off is because it never really connected for people on a, at a real practical level. So we debated this last slide a lot because we didn't want to insult anyone, but 
we wanted to have Elvis be in this presentation somehow, and we found this cute little Elvis icon. So thank you guys for, for attending and, uh, and listening in. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.